G'day and welcome to the Fred Paul Show on ADH TV, coming to you from the absolutely massive pro-Israeli rally in London today. I'll be showing you more of that in a minute. I've also got professor, law professor James Allen from the University of Queensland to talk about whether or not Dave Sharma, the former federal member for Wentworth, who has just been given a, a guaranteed seat in the Senate at the next election by the uh, New South Wales Liberals, whether or not Dave Sharma is the solution or the cause of the electoral problems conservative parties are facing in Australia at the moment. I've also got an exclusive interview with Dr. Bella Debrera of the Institute of Public Affairs. She's just released a report investigating what teachers, what student teachers are being taught at student at teacher training courses in Australia. It's quite alarming and a lot of journalists have been seeking an interview with Dr. Debrera. Well, I've managed to track her down in London for reasons that I'll explain later and got an exclusive interview. But first, today's rally was meant to be a compliment to the rally that happened yesterday, a pro-Palestinian rally. It was the seventh Saturday in succession that the pro-Palestinian crowd had been allowed to take over certain parts of London streets. I've attended a couple of those rallies and I've got to say, there's a, although nothing bad happened, there was a certain tension in the air, which is not surprising given that a lot of people were calling for genocide of the Jews, the destruction of the state of Israel and in support of Hamas, a terrorist organisation that kills babies and rapes women. I thought that if they went on long enough, something bad would happen eventually and I think the cops kind of agreed because yesterday they were handing out pamphlets to Palestinian pro-Palestinian protesters explaining what to do to avoid getting arrested. Well, that's pretty simple, just don't break the law. Anyway, they did ignore that advice and I think the cops did too. Here is what happened. In the last hour or so, we, the cameraman, our backwatcher, who's here to keep us safe, had really quite an unpleasant experience. Um, a guy on a tannoy shouting at us, wanted to know who we were broadcasting from. He wouldn't go away. He was very persistent. Eventually, I said GB News. At that point, he just... I can't tell you what he said, but it was vile, fascist scum, etc. A group of people came round us, all shouting at us. I have to say, it was very intimidating. I was shaking by the end of it. Um, we then moved um, to a completely different place, and at the end of that live, lo and behold, he appeared again. The police spoke to him, and he's been moved on. Uh, we've been told to, to stay here, and we're filing um, um, a, a police report. But um, yeah, most people very peaceful here. Well, nothing like that happened at today's event. Here are some of the people I met in the crowd. We're here to campaign against anti-Semitism, to protest against all the anti-Semitism that we've got on our streets in this country from people who say they're supposed to be left-wing liberals, but really there's anti-Semitism. It's just cloaked as pro-Palestinian support. There's a, there's a lot of hostility towards Jews and Israel at pro-Palestinian events. Is there any hostility towards Palestine here today? Well, you look around and see if you can find any hate and any screams. I mean, people are not saying Israel from the river to the sea to, to force out the Palestinians. You see so many interviews where these people are being interviewed about why that why they're actually marching for pro, why they're pro-Palestine, why, you know, it, what about Hamas, what they're doing. 
and they actually don't understand even if you ask them from the river to the sea you know which river they can't tell you so you know it's just very fashionable to be pro-palestinian i mean at work i have people coming in with palestinian flags and uh there's nothing I can do because everybody has a right to express themselves. But it's really painful to see the flags being waved of the people that murdered and raped and traumatized my brothers and sisters. Hello, mate. Uh, uh, so I've just bumped into Constantine Kisson at the rally. Constantine, why are you here, mate? Uh, we're here filming interviews just like you, just wondering why people are here, what they want to say about And what have you found out? Uh, mostly I think people are here to uh, just to show solidarity with Jews. Uh, they feel like there's been a lot of uh, anti-Semitism recently that it's escalated and they want to come in and show support. Basically. Uh, that's to, my sense of it. I've been to a couple of the pro-Palestinian rallies and I've got to say they're pretty tense and even hostile affairs. They're calling, some people are calling for genocide essentially at those affairs. At this event, do you feel the same hostility by any chance? Uh, no. Right. No, no, I haven't. I haven't been to those protests, and I will go. So, yeah. <coughs> if I'm starting here, yeah. I sort of imagine it will go downhill, but we'll find out. Yeah. I'm marching to stand against anti-Semitism and to uh, to let our, our voices heard to release the hostages now, because time is running out. We're not here to to say bad things about anyone, to ask to kill anyone, to, to, to have a genocide against anyone. No, no, we just, we won't sit and have people calling to the elimination of the state of Israel or hatred towards Jewish people or Christian or any other people. No, we're, we're not marching against anybody. We're just marching for, for unity. Uh, and, and in solidarity with our, with our brothers and sisters out there and we're, we're not out to get anybody, you know, it's not a hate much, it's a love much. I mean obviously anti-Semitism is, you know, it's really, um, it, you can see it, it's um, jumped up um, yeah. in, uh, 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 across the world, so it's just sort of showing, that, you know, how, how disgusted I am at that and that's why I'm here. As well. I think the Jewish people in the UK feel very uh, alone in the things that they're going through and it's a much of uh, unity in reminding ourselves that we, we stand together united against the terrorism that we're facing at the moment. Even in the sleepy little village where we come from, um, we had uh, an Israeli flag that was flying and somebody came at night time and cut down the flag um, so, you know, even in sleepy towns, you get um, anti-Semitism. This seems to be a fairly peaceful rally. Do you think anyone here is calling for the genocide of Palestinian people? Absolutely not. No, I don't. No. Um, if you look around, it's very peaceful. It's, uh, we're, you know, everyone here is standing together with, with, with the Jews of the world and showing their support um, for their, well, oppression, quite frankly. It used to be very comfortable in this country for Jews for many, many years, for many decades, and now it's not very comfortable. An 85-year-old woman on a tube station was assaulted by somebody who came up and said, F the Jews, an 85-year-old woman. So we're marching here not only to support the Jews in this country, but we're marching to support the British people in this country because there's been an erosion of all the values that we stand for and it's things are turned on their head it's completely illogical that hundreds of thousands of people are marching to support 
Hamas, a terrorist group. There were 300,000 people marching yesterday calling for ceasefire. I didn't see one poster, one shout to say, free the hostages. Nobody on the march yesterday and nobody on the marches that I've seen have said, we are against Hamas. We want the hostages brought home. That's what we want. We don't want Hamas doing what they're doing, just playing games with the lives of hostages. We want our people brought home. Not only our people, but all the Thais and the Americans and the Germans and the Nepalese. So, so this gentleman saw a, a bunch of people at the rally who, were, who were dressed in the uh, Palestinian kafirs. Is that right? Yes, uh, a family draped in Palestinian kafirs, and I asked them, you know, I said, surely this is a political statement in a march like this. And they said it was, to which I said I respect their views. But the difference is that in this march they can walk draped in Palestinian kafirs, and, you know, people will respect them. Try walking draped in an Israeli flag in the in the Palestinian marches, you would well, be lynched. Well, so, why were they wearing the kafirs? Were they just trying to make a point about how peaceful this march is? Well, they were trying to make a, a point about how peaceful the march is and about, you know, tolerance on both sides. If you got the impression from that that the march was a friendly, peaceful event, you'd be right. Unlike at the pro-Palestinian rallies where thugs climbed over statues and generally showed hostility towards Britain and British values, at this rally there was a sprinkling of Union Jacks among the placards and Israeli flags, which added to the already low-key vibe of the whole thing. So imagine my surprise when I later learned that this happened. Tommy Robinson, a working-class patriotic lad and freelance reporter who once did time for contempt of court after live-streaming the trial of a gang of Muslim rapists, was rounded up by the cops, pepper-sprayed and arrested. The cops claimed that Robinson's presence would cause some people distress. This was his reply to that. And the grounds of this is your presence is likely to cause harassment, alarm and distress to attendees at the march. Okay, so, sorry. Okay, okay, can okay, I can I go on reply? This was the Metropolitan Police Force yesterday. The right of the press to freely report on protests is no less important than the right to the protest itself. They should be able to do so without facing intimidation and aggression, officer. Yeah? Officers spoke with a journalist and her team following instant. I'm a member of the press. I'm at work. Yeah? I'm not is anyone here caused alarm and distress by my presence here? No. Ladies, everyone's Jewish no, here. No. There's no one who's caused alarm no, and distress. No one has come up to you and said anything about me. You are working under the orders of Sadiq Khan and Mark Rowley. Mark Rowley is an apologist for Hamas. They're apologists for jihad. And the British public are fed up of your two-tiered policing. Two-tiered policing is a phrase you hear often in Britain these days. It refers to the fact that police ignore pro-Palestinian protesters chanting racist and genocidal slogans. But when someone like Tommy Robinson simply turns up at a rally, he gets arrested. In an opinion piece for the Times newspaper a couple of weeks ago, Home Secretary Sue Ella Braverman said that this was the police playing favourites. She also said that her own government had failed to deliver on its promise to reduce immigration, which is another hot topic for, for ordinary Britons. But agreeing with ordinary people is not what politicians are meant to do these days. 
So Braverman had to go. This discord between politics and the concerns of ordinary people is happening in Australia as well, where, the, where excessive immigration is causing a housing and infrastructure crisis, not to mention racial tension. But there's simply no urgency among politicians to fix the problem. Despite what they say, most politicians and some of their fellow travellers in the mainstream media aren't driven by what concerns ordinary people like you and me. They're too preoccupied with doing whatever it takes to remain in power, sell newspapers and keep their puppet masters at the World Economic Forum and United Nations happy. Politics used to be the art of the possible. Now it's the art of the unpopular. And there is nothing more unpopular than excessive or illegal immigration. Well, nothing maybe perhaps except COVID lockdowns and vaccines. Last week, I was lucky enough to interview Bob Moran, the former Telegraph cartoonist here in London, who was sacked in 2021 for being too outspoken about the vaccines. Moran has since gone on to become a hero of the worldwide freedom movement and creates some of the most striking images, capturing the zeitgeist and concerns about freedom and tyranny. Here is just a small sample of what he told me. It's just not moral to do that to people, regardless of how many lives you think you're going to save. People had this idea that science suddenly trumped morality, that you can do unethical things if scientists say it will work. It's not a conspiracy theory that the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation have given a lot of money to the Telegraph. And, you know, at that point I did think, OK, this could be it. He was totally concerned with revenue and reputation. I was sacked um, as a result of a very public attack and the, the sort of majority narrative was I was a, a bad guy, you know, I was a sort of vicious, nasty man who bullied uh, doctors. This is the most important, powerful piece of art I've ever done and I would never ever in a million years have been able to do it for the paper I work for. Observing what's gone on in the last three years means you have to reevaluate and recalibrate everything about the way you see the world and everything you used to feel connected to and, and support, you need to think again. Now, I get very confused now about what it means to be patriotic or to love your country. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, I don't love my government. I don't love the royal family. <laughs> I don't love any of its institutions. So do I love my country? I love physically the island I live on. I think it's one of the most beautiful places in the world. I love the countryside. Um, I love a lot of the, the towns and villages and the buildings and I'm just going to let rip with this one and uh, <laughs> say exactly what I think of the guy and, and I can be as outrageous as I want to be. They know what the reality is, but they know it cannot permeate the mainstream narrative. Well, there is a lot more like that in my in-depth interview with Bob Moran next week. Now, let's go on to my interview with Dr. Bella Debrera. 
Well, there are a lot of journalists in Australia seeking an interview with Dr. Bella Debrera right now of the Institute of Public Affairs because last week she published a report called Who's Teaching the Teachers? And it was pretty explosive, exposing just how Marxist Australian teaching degrees are. Now, not, no journalists were able to uh, find Dr. Debrera because, as it happens, she's here with me in London. Dr. Debrera, full disclosure, is in fact my wife. And uh, if you've been following my reporting from London over the past few weeks, just, for, just so you know, she's also been my sound recordist and camera operator. So if you've noticed that uh, the camera work from my reporting in London has been a bit wobbly, you can blame Dr. Debrera. She's better as a researcher into education for the IPA than she is holding a camera, but uh, I'm glad she's with me and she joins me now to talk about her new report. Dr. Debrera, welcome to the Fred Paul Show. Thank you so much. You're right. I am better as a, as a researcher <laughs> than as a videographer. Well, let's so let's talk about your report. Is it a is this is there a correlation between the increasing wokeness of teacher training degrees and decreasing educational standards in Australia? 100% there's a correlation and all Australians need to know this has been going on for a long time. So since we started testing um, literacy and numeracy with NAPLAN 20 years ago, the results have been absolutely plummeting. Um, and there is it's not a coincidence that when you look at what's being taught to teachers in the education departments, the focus is on social justice, it's on identity politics, it's on diversity and inclusion, it's on all the woke issues that you can possibly imagine, um, with much less focus on the core academic subjects that teachers need to be teaching children. So literacy, numeracy, phonics, grammar, mathematics, all those things are secondary to the rest of the teaching degrees, which are really critical social justice. So just looking at it from a, a broader perspective, though, though, traditionally the education system churned out kids or young adults who pretty much adhered to our conventional values and principles and even appreciated our culture and our history. Now, there is a phrase that I believe is used in education circles these days, it's called the problem of reproduction. Now, traditionally, education system reproduced the kind of kids that we once were and, and grew up into adults like us, but I believe the education system is trying now to break that cycle. It is, you're right. It's totally unrecognisable from what it was in the 1970s. So most people over 50, 55 would have, had, would have received a classical liberal education and the point was that the teachers were meant to impart knowledge, um, introduce children to the social norms, teach them values, um, turn them into good citizens. And that was reproduced from one generation to the next. So there wasn't a massive difference between what was taught in the 1970s and, say, the 1940s. Um, that was broken in the 1970s by progressives who decided, as you say, they came up with the term the problem of reproduction. They decided that that was not a good thing, that we didn't want generations of children to be acting and thinking in a certain way, which we would now call conservative. Um, so they realised that they would have to capture the education departments into, in order to break this system, break the cycle of reproduction. And they came up with a new theory of education. Um, and so that all happened in the 1970s. So 
now we're at the other end, we're at the, the very pointy end of, you know, generations of indo indoctrination of, of students coming out of school with um, a very different approach to life, a very different worldview. I can't imagine. I've read, I've read your report and I've heard some of the reporting of it and some of the viewers, most of the viewers will probably be familiar with, with what's in this report. I can't imagine. I'd rather stick pins in my eyes than sit through one of these degrees. Dr. Debrera, is the objective, objective of this new form of teacher training is one of it to discourage or deter people who don't subscribe to Marxist or socialist uh, opinions? Well, look, I don't have the evidence for that, but I can only speculate based on the fact that 50% of people who go into teaching degrees don't finish. That is terrible. And I think teaching is vocational. Teaching is something that you're driven to do. It's not, it's not just an ordinary job of um, shuffling paper. It's not, it's not sitting in an office just, you know, doing somebody's accounts. And I think people go in with a vocation, they realise once they're in the degree, maybe a few months in, that it's not what they signed up for. It, it wouldn't take long to work out that, that you're being taught something that you don't, that you don't think is actually relevant to, to the classroom. So I think a lot of people drop out precisely because of that. And conversely, the people who stay, worryingly, are the ones that have completely brought into the project. And they're the ones that are ending up in the classroom. And this is why we keep getting these horror stories of what is going on at primary school level, at secondary school level. Um, and, and the ones that stay are fully signed up members of the critical social justice movement. They're the ones that believe they are meant to be the agents of change. And that movement began, if I'm not mistaken, with a Brazilian gentleman called Paulo Freire. Tell me what you know about him. Well, he was a, um, a Marxist educationalist. He was actually um, expelled. He was exiled from Brazil because he was so extreme. He was a communist, um, a self proclaimed communist. This is not just me using, you know, derogatory language. <laughs> He'd um, take it as a compliment. He would anyway. take it as a compliment. <laughs> he um, based his new education theory on Marx and his idea behind education was that it should be about it should be political, that all education is political. His idea was to to bring children to a state of consciousness, a state of Marxist consciousness by making them very aware of um, oppressive structures in society. So he, when he talked about literacy, he talked about, he meant political literacy, not the literacy in the traditional sense as you and I understand it, which is very much connected to the fact that, that now children aren't taught reading and writing, but they are taught how to be politically literate, which is exactly why every time there's a, there's a, you know, a, something to march about, climate change, pro-Palestine, children will take the day off school and they'll be out there. They might not necessarily know what they're shouting about, but they do know that they're going, that they think they're on the side of the oppressor. Well, one of the oppressed, things... Sorry, oppressed. Of the, <laughs> no, <laughs> that the, right? We're the oppressors. We're let's the get oppressors. That. <laughs> but one of the things I've noticed about kids, one of the undeniable facts about young people is that they have a finely tuned sensitivity towards unfairness. I'd argue that this starts at the age of about one when they realise it's unfair that they can't just eat ice cream in, in, and have to eat their dinner before uh, getting pudding or whatever. But unfairness is just something that kids are finally, they have a great, fine appreciation of it. Now that's what Marxism and socialism is all about. So as far as these Marxist and socialist teachers are concerned, They've got a captive audience, haven't they? They really do, because the whole classroom and the whole 
teaching material is set up to to expose the unfairness in society. So they go through school thinking Australia is a racist country. Um, the whole thing has been very unfair to Aboriginal Australians, that they're the oppressed. And they're also taught that they are the oppressor as well yeah. in that scenario. Um, and it's designed to do this. This is not an accident. Um, so they are ready for a revolution. They are ready to to be part of the perpetual revolution, which is what Marxism is, essentially. Ultimately, the aim is to overthrow our society and replace it with a socialist utopia. Yeah. All right, I'm joined now by Professor James Allen from the University of Queensland, law professor James Allen. Uh, welcome to the show, James. Fred, thank you for having me. Another James, you're one of the most staunchest conservatives that I know, and as a result, you're probably the staunchest critic of the Liberal Party I know. Let's talk about uh, Dave Sharma's, the, the former member for Wentworth, Dave Sharma, getting an almost guaranteed uh, seat in the Senate at the next election by getting a pretty high spot on the Liberal Party's ticket. What do you make of Dave Sharma? Um, he's a bit of a moderate, isn't he, Jim? Well, yeah, and, you know, he was a yes person. So, I mean, basically, I don't understand what the Liberal Party's doing. They're so out of touch with their base. I mean, the, if if the yes side had prevailed within the Liberal Party, then Mr. Albanese would win, the Labor would win the next three elections. It would have just destroyed the Liberal Party base. And so they're pre-selecting a guy who thought it was a good idea to separate people based on race. Now, is he the worst sort of moderately left liberal no he's smart but you know i just would not be picking these people if you can't tell that no was the right side then go and join another party you know but don't yeah. join the liberal party so this is this and is Dave this idea of the support of the no ca uh, support of the yes case in the voice uh, to parliament referendum which as you say i mean that's completely out of touch that's who they pick and that and this makes life incredibly difficult for mr dutton because, you know, he should have, Dutton should have come out against the voice from day one, but he's trying to manage his, his party room where, who knows, but my guess is an awful lot of Liberal Party uh, MPs were basically yes people. They were a little bit worried about the party base. Look at the Liberal Party at the state level. They were pretty much all yes until, until it became obvious that this was a bad idea. So, you know, Chris in, in Dave Sharma's defence, I'd say that uh, he would actually make a fine foreign minister. Now, if if he did make it, well, he's almost guaranteed to make it into the Senate, you probably wouldn't, you know, his opinions about things like the voice to parliament or even net zero, which, you know, he's a bit of an environmentalist as well, his opinions about those things really wouldn't matter as much as the fact that he'd make a good foreign minister, don't you think? Well, you know, Julie Bishop wasn't in the country much, but she certainly played a big role in bringing down Abbott. I mean, it's a pretty big cabinet post. If you put Sharma in there, you're putting in a guy who, you know, he's a net zero person. He's a yes supporter. You know, why why do you want to put people in that the average Liberal Party voter doesn't agree with? You know, maybe Sharma's okay on foreign affairs stuff and Israel and that. But basically, I don't have, I don't share very many of his views. He's sort of... They call themselves the moderates, but they're basically labor light. And on some issues, they come pretty close to the Greens. And these are the people. <laughs> Good point. That, yeah. know, these are the and people all, who are being put into the Senate, into the party and, room. 
And all this at a time when the right seems to be having quite a massive revival around the world at the moment. You've got Javier Millet in uh, Argentina, who's a bit of a rock star when it comes to conservatives anywhere in the world at the moment. You've got uh, Pierre Poiliev in uh, Canada, who will probably be the next uh, Canadian Prime Minister. You've got Gert Wilders in the Netherlands, who is a new power broker in Dutch politics. All of this, Jim, is being driven by grassroots frustration at the what seems to be the collusion between you know big government and globalists and big media and even big pharma <clears throat> this is this is ordinary people rising up why can't the liberal party do that well there's i mean and you've forgotten trump of course who's who's uh, up three four five points he's he's the he's the furthest ahead in the polls he's ever been at a similar time uh, before the next election, so uh, you know, right now you'd ha you'd have to make Trump the favorite to win next year. Um, and Paulie Evra, because I'm Canadian, native-born Canadian, there is no right of center really uh, media supporting him. He's just articulate. He learns the sort of data, and he and he calls out the journalists for their for their obvious left of center bias. And, you know, the idea that the media, big media, the legacy media is is uh, balanced, it's just laughable. It's laughable. And what politicians need to do is what Poiliev does. He just calls them out for their bias, and he's on top of it. So uh, one of the reasons it's so hard in Australia really is because we have a voting system for the lower house that only we have in one small little South Pacific island. It's basically preferential voting. They took it, they brought it into Alaska, but almost nowhere has it. And it's a protection racket for the two main parties. So what, upwards of a third of voters at the last election did not make Labour or the Liberals their first preference. But they get your votes later and it doesn't. So when people say, oh, I'm so mad at the Liberals, I'm not going to vote for them. I say, well, where did you preference them? Fifth. Where did you preference Labour? Sixth. You voted for the Liberals. <laughs> so on you ultimately have to pick between the Liberals and Labour. And that means whichever one you put higher is who you're voting for. And neither party has any interest in changing that. So preferential voting is really a problem. But do you sense this groundswell of support for conservative uh, politics, do you sense that that actually even exists in Australia at the moment? Well, it would be nice if Mr. Dutton, you know, was a little quicker to sort of jump on things. He's going to have to cut immigration, which he's not... I think it needs to get down to twenty or thirty thousand a year for the next three or four years. Um, I think some people in the cabinet, in the shadow cabinet room, are pushing for that. But Mr. Dutton has been very slow to pick things up. You know, he's got advisors who are sort of from the Texter school, Mark Texter. They were they took a long time to come out for no in the referendum. It's a sure vote winner. We're going to massively slash legal immigration for two or three years. That might win him the election alone. I don't know what he's waiting for. But, you know, this is not the big end of town. All the people who came out for yes in the referendum, even the mining companies, they all want cheap labor. And, you know, we have in Australia a collapsing productivity. So productivity went down, what, 6%? The one thing that correlates with wealth is productivity growth. We're letting all these people in. And what that does is it increases GDP because GDP just measures economic activity. 
So That's if you wrong. live on an island with 10 people and you let another 20 people in, you've doubled it. The overall GDP goes up, but in, it, it often happens that individual GDP, so GDP per person goes down. So our yep. GDP per person, we've had two, we've had two recessions in the last three or four years. It's, we're not doing any better than Japan and Japan has no immigration at all. So the well, average person is, is doing worse, but the big companies get cheap labor. And, you know, so they're in favor of this massive, uh, basically rich people now as a generalization, they vote left. And this is what people don't realize. 40, 50 years ago, wealthy people voted right. Your average wealthy person, think of where the yes vote succeeded. It succeeded in all the wealthiest constituencies in Australia. Wealthy people don't pay the cost of their decisions. So, uh, yeah, so we have a problem in this country. And the Liberal Party is really uh, not, you know, it, it, it's better than Labour for sure. And Dutton did a good job at the end in uh, winning the voice referendum, although I put much more credit with Jacinda Price. But uh, they got to start coming out with some right of centre policies and stop, you know, the, 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 the sort of moderate wing of the Liberal Party wants to fight on your tax rate or maybe yeah. tinkering with the labour relations rules. And, you know, when you're letting in 500,000 immigrants a year, people don't care about that. I don't, I'd, I'd, be, I'd vote to be poor to fix some of the cultural issues. You made the point that, uh, that rich people vote left these days. I think you also sometimes make the point that uh, lawyers and judges used to vote right and now they vote left. Now, I want to point out a little coincidence that I picked up recently, Jim, and that is over here in Britain, the Supreme Court made a decision recently to throw out or declare unlawful the Conservative government's policy to send illegal migrants, illegal immigrants, to Rwanda. So they arrive by boat and they go, right, off you go, jump on a plane and off to Rwanda. The, the Supreme Court has deemed that unlawful. And as a result, the Conservative government was caught off guard, even though they knew this decision was coming and knew it would probably go against them, the, the, the government was caught off guard. Now, the same thing happened in Australia. So the High Court came down with this, this decision. It was, always, it was almost always going to go this way to free dangerous criminal refugees into the community. And the Labor government was just caught with its, you know, with its hands in its pockets. Now, Jim, I'm, I'm looking at that from just from the perspective of an ordinary person. You've got the two governments seemingly couldn't care less about this issue. Neither could the High Court or the Supreme Court. Yet this is one of the most burning issues for ordinary people. And as you say, you know, it's, it, immigration boosts GDP, but it doesn't really improve the lives of ordinary people. Now, my question, Jim, is... Is this just a coincidence or are all these governments and lawyers getting their orders from some higher authority? No, I just think that the judges tend to have the same sort of outlook as, you know, your average Guardian reader. Uh, so in the UK case, it, it was focused on the European Convention. And so Sunak could deal with it. Prime Minister Sunak could deal with it. He'd have to pull out of the European Convention and repeal the Human Rights Act which is what basically Suella Braverman wanted to do, his former home home office uh, cabinet minister, and he just fired her. And so he's not serious. So there's been 13 years of, of Tory government in Britain. Every year they promised to get down immigration, not just illegal immigration, legal immigration, and every single year it goes up. 
And so, you know, they stand there in front of their own core voters and no one believes they deserve to be obliterated the next election. They really do. I mean, a, a part of me wants to see the end of the Tory party. They're that bad. Uh, and, you know, the judges don't pay the cost of these decisions. So in the Australian case, it was about the separation of powers, which is a, um, a doctrine that's judicially made up. Uh, you know, and, and so if you come from Canada, I learned my constitutional law originally in Canada or Britain or New Zealand. There is no separation of do powers doctrine that allows judges to strike down legislation. So the real question was the Migration Act. You know, does the Migration Act allow indefinite detention? And is the Migration Act constitutional? And back in 2004, the High Court of Australia, four to three in the case called Al-Kateb, said yes. That's with judges like Ian Callanan, Dyson Hayden, um, I think uh, McHugh. Uh, anyway, I can't remember who they all were. It's been a long time. So implicitly, they must have overruled Al-Kateb because one of the things they haven't done is released their reasons for the judgment. But the kind of lawyer, the kind of judges that the Liberal Party appointed in nine years of government, that's the problem. You know, they appointed judges who four to three delivered the love case, which was about um, people claiming to be Aboriginal so you couldn't deport them even though they're not citizens. It was a ridiculous decision. And the labor appointees were based, except for Bell, were basically in the minority saying, no, 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 no. It was liberal appointee judges who brought in, brought about love. And liberal appointees were in the majority in the, in the, um, recent case that really undermined federalism. And in this case about uh, releasing the very dangerous people, but well, we don't know, they haven't really told us which way it's split. I think Stewart is the one um, sort of solid judge that liberals appointed, and they only appointed him because of the uproar over love. They just aren't capable of appointing an Ian Callan anymore. They don't take right. appointments seriously. Their appointments to the top court is delivering the problem. Now, partly it's a problem that Labour's having to live with. But, you know, look at the Liberal appointments to the ABC. They appointed the managing director. They appointed the chairman. Look at the Liberal appointments to the Human Rights Commission. Every single Human Rights Commissioner was appointed by the Liberals, and they didn't say a word during COVID. Wouldn't it be Not great to have someone like... Word. Wouldn't it be great to have someone like Javier Malay, who, uh, who is just lining up all the, the sort of political, socialist, bureaucratic institutions and saying he's going to get rid of all of them in Argentina. Wouldn't it be great? To if he does that, you know, Paul yeah. Ev in Canada has pledged that if he's elected, he's up about 14 points in the polls. And again, there's no sort of spectator in Canada. There's no sort of Australian newspaper. You know, he's completely out there, but he stands up to the press. He said he's going to cut the ABC, the CBC, which is the equivalent of our, he's going to cut it in half. So, wow. you know, what does our ABC get? Like they get 1.2 billion a year. So they'd be down to 600 million. Oh my God, wouldn't that be great? I can't remember a single time when the ABC has taken a line I agree with, but my taxes yeah. pay for it. And I don't yeah. remember a single time where they came at an issue from the conservative side. Never, they never do it. And you know, we're supposed to have, we're supposed to pay taxes to an organization that hasn't got a single solitary right of center producer or journalist or main presenter. Well, the, the ABC, How did they get away? I, saw, I, noticed, I noticed the other day the ABC referred to Gert Wilders, the new conservative uh, politician, leading politician in the Netherlands, in the Netherlands, 
as a as a far right politician. Uh, sorry, a far right populist. But uh, if you had to, had a look at the ABC at their politics, their budget, and the audience, you'd have to say they're a far left unpopulist organization. Yeah, and, I mean, uh, when, the, when, when people throw around the word populist, what they mean is the wrong person won the election. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. By any people normal definition of populist. Yeah. Well, now, know, just quickly before you go, Jim, quickly before you go, let's just quickly talk about free speech. Now, I noticed in the, in the pro-Palestinian march in Melbourne recently, uh, there was a poster depicting Benjamin, Israeli Prim, uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Net Netanyahu, with a Hitler moustache, uh, we've seen a company in Sydney refusing to take the uh, business of a of a client, a potential client, on the grounds that they were Jewish. Now, my I would suggest, Jim, as free speech absolutists, people like you and I would defend those people to say what they like and and do business with whomever they like, because that's just what freedom is what do you say well i'm a big free speech guy uh, i think i'm the most pro free speech law professor in the country but you have to be careful no one's a free speech absolutist you know so even when you go to libertarian conferences i'm not a libertarian i think they're they're wrong on some things but no one is in favor of someone standing up and, and inciting violence or death you know so there's there even in the u.s with the strong first amendment protections you can't deal in child pornography, you can't counsel violence and incite violence. And so there's always limits. The question is, where do you draw the line? So if people want to go out there and protest and make, basically say, kill all the Jews, they should stop them from saying that. That is inciting violence, right? If they want to express views about, you know, where the borders are in Palestine and Israel, of course, they should be able to say that, even if you don't agree with them. And on the other issue about the sort of bouncy castle, guy didn't want to rent to um, Jewish people. Look, it's complicated. That issue is complicated because there are issues where you're like a common carrier phone provider or you're renting. You don't want people to say, I'm not going to provide phone service to people with the wrong skin pigmentation. So you have to have a blanket rule, no discrimination. If it's a sort of phone provider or renting apartments. When you move along the spectrum to things that really require a certain amount of artisan type skills, a particularly uh, baking a cake for a wedding, say, well, if someone down the street can bake the same cake, uh, then I don't think you should force people to bake cakes. And I don't think you should force people to give bouncy cancels. If you're the only one providing the phone, you cannot let someone say, I don't want to provide phone service to you, right? Because that's the sort of basic, and they don't do that in the U.S. either. So free speech Jim, is a complicated a, idea. It is, but Jim, in, a, um, in a, a truly free economy and society, if the monopoly provider of a phone service said, we're not selling phones, we're not providing phone services to black people, that would provide an opportunity for another company to come in and take that market. I mean, the, the, the key thing to me, Jim, is that we agree that racism is abhorrent. And if, if, if social standards can set that, why does the law need to step in? Well, again, I'm, you know, in practice, there are entry costs to running a phone service. And so if you're going to say, we're just not going to provide phone service to blacks, 
or we're not going to allow any conservatives to use uh, GoFundMe or PayPal. The problem is, it turns out it's very difficult for to start a new to start a new service. And so the general rule is, you know, you have to be realistic about this. I I am big on free speech, but I don't think you can just go out and let people shut down services because you don't like the color of their skin pigmentation or something. So I, I, I don't go that far. I think in practice, you have to have limits. on it. So it's the same way as you cannot let someone stand up and cite murder. And I wouldn't yeah. let someone stand up and say, hey, I've discovered the 29 uh, CIA agents in Russia, so I'm going to publish them. I wouldn't let them publish that list. There's always limits on speech. It's a spectrum. And the question is, where are you on the spectrum? Now, I'm way over in terms of letting people speak their minds, but there are going to be limits. I don't think people should be able to deal in child pornography. You know, you know, you might say, well, it's, we're free. It's freedom. Do that. But you just, there are so many heavy costs. So you can be fully subscribed as I am to the John Stuart Mill idea that the competition of ideas matters and the cauldron of ideas matters. It does. And people do better when they hear views they don't like. That's true. And yet at some point you're going to run up to a, an issue where you say, no, you're going to have to stifle that speech uh, because he wants to kill people or because he wants to deal in child pornography or whatever. So we can disagree where to draw the line. The basic yeah, problem yeah. is, you and I are way over on the free speech side, and most of the people making these calls, and it's not just government, it's in big corporations, they don't have any regard really for free speech. This this disinformation bill is an absolute disgrace. You know, it's exempting it government, it's exempting universities, it's exempting legacy media. Basically, what it wants to do is shut down conservative thought. And the worst part is the idea was mooted by Fletcher, during the Morrison government. You know, worst liberal Marjorie. prime minister, maybe maybe worse than Turnbull was Mr. Morrison. I haven't got any time for Mr. Morrison at all. Yeah. Well, the disturbing thing that I find, Jim, is that these days the instinctive response from both sides of government when there's a problem is to just cut down on free speech. You know, you can see Chris Minns doing it in New South Wales. In Dublin, in response to the riots on Friday night, the response is, we're going to have to, we're going to, have to tighten free speech. Anyway, we're going to have to tighten ours too, but Jim. Conor, McGregor, out of Conor McGregor is stepping up to deal with that, Fred. Conor <laughs> McGregor is letting him go. Where's Australia's Conor McGregor? That's what we want. Conor McGregor. I don't know where. Where's our Conor McGregor? Is what I. Uh... <laughs> maybe we. Maybe we need to hit the gym. We need to hit the gym. Well, you know, Start I'd like. To, I'd like to say I'm on the cutting edge of uh, of uh, cage fighting, but I'm not. <laughs> All right. Well, we like talking to you here on ADH anyway, Jim. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Fred. Well, that's all from me from London for another week. Thanks for watching. I'll see you next Monday at seven o'clock. Good night.